Father's Day today. It's our Father's Day worship gathering. And actually, in the week, I thought I would look up uh, the dictionary definition of Father's Day, which might seem a little bit of a foolish thing to do. You could probably figure it out without the help of the dictionary. But I was interested to see what uh, the dictionary might actually say. And it says uh, this about Father's Day. Father's Day is a day of the year in which fathers are particularly honoured by their children. And I thought that was interesting because I bet there's a whole pile of wives and mothers who think, no, 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 at least for the best part of my children's lives, it's a day on which fathers are honoured because I make sure that there's a present and a card and, uh, and, and to be fair, the other way around, I'm sure, on Mother's Day as well. But anyway, they do eventually, I can give testimony to the fact that the kids get there in the end and they figure it out themselves. Uh, Father's Day was first observed, so the history books tell us, in Washington in 1910, so it's not that long a tradition, well, yeah, com in, comparatively. And in the US and in South Africa and Britain, it's celebrated in June, the third Sunday in June, and uh, um, for us here in Australia, we celebrate it on the first Sunday in September, which happens to be this year the first day of spring also, although you might not know by looking out the window. <laughs> Okay, so we are here. We are here, uh, we've set aside a day to celebrate and remember our dads. And like I uh, intimated a little er earlier, that's a really easy thing for some of us to do. Some of us have got good dads, great dads, even awesome dads. And we are more than happy to set aside a day to celebrate our good dads. Okay, that's definitely some of us fall into that category. Some of us find it a more difficult day... <laughs> Look at that. There's a lovely little father-son moment happening up there. Cam was patting his dad on the shoulder. That may be your entire Father's Day gift right there. <laughs> it was, yeah. But still, nice moment. Um, for some, it's a difficult day because, not because dads have been bad, but good dads aren't with us anymore, or be good dads you know, live far away from us, or we're far away from them. For some, it's a difficult day because actually dads have been unknown to, to, to us. And for others, um, it's actually a really tough day. In fact, I know as a fact that for some in this church family, it's such a tough day that they don't come to church on Father's Day because of their own experiences of how they were fathered. And for some even, because of their own remorse and heartache about how they themselves parented their children. So it's, it can be... You know, those extremes from, yeah, bring it on, I'd celebrate my dad every Sunday, through to that other extreme of this is a difficult and awkward day and it weighs heavily on you. So again, as I said at the beginning, we're going to acknowledge that, but what we're going to do is helicopter up a little bit or beyond um, that without letting go of them or diminishing those experiences and have a look at what someone who has got fathering nailed is like, and that is God the Father. Now, there's a whole pile of things that we could say about God the Father. The Bible is full of uh, his self-revelation of what he's like as a father. We've got our own experiences of God as father. We've got the whole you know, 2,000 years of tradition, or longer than that, of course, back into the Old Testament days of what God the Father is like. But what I've decided to do today is just look at the three times, and the three times only, that the word Abba, Father, is used in the New Testament, three times only. Now, Abba is a transliter transliterated Aramaic word. That means the, the words and letters from one lang language, the, the sound of them have been translated into uh, the words and letters of our language. So you end up with something that's a transliteration. Uh, sounds like the original word. So it's Abba. And wherever we, we see it in the New Testament, it's always followed by a Greek translation, literally, the father. 
So when you see Abba in the New Testament, you always see Father or the Father as well. Abba, Father. And it's always used, always, only used three times, but in all those three occasions it's used of Father God. Now the book of Mark is probably the earliest record we have of the life of Jesus and that's the first time we see this word Abba, Father, used. So it's Jesus talking to God. Let's have a listen to what he says. He says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you, so please take this cup of suffering away from me, yet I want your will to be done and not mine. If you hang around in church much, they're pretty famous words. Still, we'll give a little bit of context to them, shall we? Jesus was in a very famous olive grove called the Garden of Gethsemane. It was the night that he was going to be arrested and he was in great distress. Now, distress is one of those words that has become uh, diminished, probably. You know, I get distressed when I realise I'm on the last episode of my current favourite Netflix series. Or I get distressed when I go to the the fridge and there's the Cadbury wrapper there, but when I pick it up, it's nothing in there anymore. Who left that empty wrapper in the fridge? It's not that sort of distress that the, the Greek word translated here as stress is about. It's, it's actually a, quite a confronting word. It's talking about the sort of horrific distress that might make you literally fall to your knees or, or call out with uh, really ugly, uh, overwhelming sobbing to actually have a physical pain because of some emotional distress going on for you. It's the sort of distress that has Jesus saying to his friends, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. In other words, I feel bad enough that I could die right now. Stay here and keep watch with me. I just want to take a little aside here. Actually, you know what? No, I'll leave it. I'll leave it for a little bit later. (laughs) Aside. I have put the aside aside. We'll see if we come back to it. I'll do it in this next bit. Jesus went on to pray back with his Father God, and he says, basically, if it was possible, that the awful thing that he knew was coming, he he asks if that could actually be taken from him. So that the verse that I've read there, Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Now, the aside that I wanted to make in this space was about God's will. I don't believe it was God's will that his son be killed on the cross. But God's will was that Jesus would let the violent plans of humankind play out because in that, together, they were going to do something once and for all about violence and our human tendency to solve problems with violence. An interesting little thing to have a think about, what God's will was in that circumstance. So Jesus prayed to God, his Father, and he used the the very familiar, everyday language of families of his time. And it wasn't just little kids. uh, Often that word Abba, you'll hear it uh, translated as daddy, and we associate that with small children, don't we? But Abba was used, you know, a teenage son, a a young adult son, an older adult son would, would refer to his father in the context of the household in that familiar way of Abba. It was an everyday word. But what was really unusual about Jesus using that is that this is the first time that we have a record of this word being used for God. God the Father. So Abba was considered an appropriate um, word in in the everyday household. It was a very familiar term for dad. 
but it wouldn't have sat all that comfortably as a respectful or appropriate term for God the Father. And here is Jesus, using it as a simple and familiar acknowledgement of his relationship in that olive grove. You're my dad, I'm your kid. Abba, Father, I know you love me. I know you are with me. And Jesus says, I will do what you ask. So what are some of the things that we see about good fathering by effectively eavesdropping on this interaction between Jesus and uh, his Father God? Well, here's some of the things that I think we see about what what good fathers are like. Good fathers are present. God was there with Jesus. But more than that, I mean, you can be there and not there, if you know what I mean. Good fathers, they're not just present, they are in relationship with their kids. So there was enough intimacy and enough confidence that Jesus could call out to his father. And the third thing that I think we see from eavesdropping on this little prayer, this conversation between son and father, is that good fathers, they fill their kids with confidence that comes from knowing they are loved. That's a beautiful thing that that fathers, that parents can do. Fill their kids with confidence that means they know they are loved. It was that confidence that allowed Jesus to say, I really don't want to go down this path, but I'll do what you think is best. When I was four years old, I had to have my adenoids out when I was four a long, long time ago. So that was back in the day when that was at least seven days in hospital Um, I've got 10 days in my mind, but I haven't had a chance to check that with my mum and dad. It was a long time in hospital. Your parents did not sit in an armchair by your bed, let me tell you. And their visiting hours, they couldn't even visit you every day. So as a four-year-old, into hospital, going to have my adenoids out, going to be there forever, as far as I was concerned, and would, you know, never see mum and dad again. It was so traumatic for mum, she didn't even take me. Dad took me to to the hospital. Um, And if I close my eyes, if I was to do it right now, I can... I can picture my dad's back walking away from me down the long, again, forever long, it seemed, in my mind's eye, ward. I won't do it. I might get ugly if I close my eyes and did that. And I can hear my screaming. And I can see little me jumping out of my bed and running down that ward, calling out, Dad, Dad, Daddy, come back. He picks me up. And he carried me back to my hospital bed and he hugged me for a little while, but clearly he had to go. I had to have my adenoids removed, removed, apparently. So he pulled out of his pocket his handkerchief. That was back in the day, or he still actually keeps a cloth handkerchief in his pocket, an ironed square handkerchief. A few of you may still do, so a few nods. Nobody's willing to say. Anyway, he pulled out his hanky and he said to me, hold this hanky, Kaz, and you hold it in your hand, and when you go to sleep, put it under your pillow at night time. And every time you look at this hanky or hold this hanky, remember this. Remember, I love you. Remember, you can trust me and you will be safe. And remember, I will come back for you. That began a long tradition in my family that exists to this day of daddy's hanky bitten handed out at tough times. Remember I love you. Remember to trust me you will be safe and remember I will come back for you. Abba, Father, I know you love me. I know you are with me and I will do what you ask. Okay, 
Now, the second place we read this word Abba is in a letter written by Paul uh, to the church in Rome. And he says there, So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. So here, this is beautiful. The second time we hear this word, Paul is talking about us being able to say Abba, Father, like Jesus did back in that earlier story that we read a little of. And Paul goes on to explain to the people that this is possible because of the mysterious work that God does. I can't explain it to you. He has a good attempt at it, but still ends up not really being able to make it thoroughly clear in our heads and hearts. But it's because of the mysterious work that God's own spirit does with the spirit in me, the spirit in you, that makes us children of God. That there's something in that relationship that makes us children of God, who, who know they are loved, who know they are forgiven, and who can stand to their full height. So that's the other thing I wanted to say about what um, we can learn about God the good father and good fathering in our own relationships. Good fathers always see us, regardless of what we've done, they always see us through the lens of love and forgiveness, and they help us to be our best. Good fathers help their kids stand tall. I read a story, I think I've actually shared it here before, so apologies if it's familiar to you, but a good story, I think. A, a true story, but not one I've been involved in. I read it in a book about a guy called Carey who went to see a pastor friend of his to say that he, he needed help um, in his relationship with God. He said, specifically, I'm losing a big-time battle with sin, and that is particularly the sin of pornography. He said, I travel a lot, and I'm in hotels for you know, the time when I'm away, and it's just it's a massive temptation when I'm there by myself, and more often than I like, I fail in that space. And he said, I feel really bad when this happens. I feel guilty every time it happens. I confess to God. Every time it happens, I promise God I'm never going to do it again. I've even confessed it to my wife, who was very upset, um, but, but also understanding. And she actually said to me, she knows it's not who I am. Now, Kerry's friend interrupted him at this stage and said, okay, well, hang on a minute, then who are you, Kerry? And Kerry struggled with that. I reckon many of us might struggle with that. You know, if someone said, so just who are you? What would we go to? Our jobs, our relationships. Anyway, Kerry struggled for a little bit, but he came up with this. He said, well, I'm a Christian, and I'm trying to follow Jesus' commands for living right. I go to church, and I read the Bible, and I try not to sin. I try to be a good person like Jesus, but deep down, I know that I am a sinner. And this is how Carey's friend responded to him at this point. He said, you know how a butterfly becomes a butterfly, right? It starts out as a caterpillar or a worm, if you like, you know, a little slimy green thing, maybe different colours, but little and slimy. And worms can only crawl. A worm cannot fly. But it goes into a cocoon, or more technically, I believe, a chrysalis, the root word of which is Christ, interestingly, goes into a chrysalis, and it comes out of that chrysalis completely changed, went in as a little green slimy worm and comes out as a butterfly. So the old worm has gone and passed and the new, the butterfly, has arrived. And Kerry's friend said to him, so when you talk about yourself as a, just a sinner but fortunately one who's been saved by love and grace, when you talk about it in that way, it's like you're saying, well, I'm just a worm but it's okay because I've got these wings. 
And he said, worms don't have wings, Kerry. Worms don't have wings. Butterflies have wings. <clears throat> so let's have a think about that. The basis of the Christian faith is that Jesus came to be God with us. And he died and he lived again to show us beyond a doubt how much God loves us and effectively to put an end to, use this analogy, to the worm-type life. How do I describe that? To put an end to relationships and communities uh, that are characterised by the vicious cycle of violence and evil. The vicious cycle of always having perpetrators and victims and we all take turns in being those being one or the other at various times. He, he came to put an end to that sort of community life and relationships. And he came to bring relationships and community focused um, and shaped by forgiveness and love and justice, which does affect me, the individual, but can you see it's very much about relationships. He came to do something about relationships with him and with each other, to take us out of that cycle, that vicious human cycle uh, where we are, there's victims and perpetrators all the time and into this cycle of uh, relationships shaped by forgiveness and love and justice. So when God the Father looks at you, he looks through the lens of forgiveness and love and sees his child. And it's not, just in case you're thinking, cool, it's not that everything you do suddenly looks beautiful and is beautiful and right in his eyes. It's not like God is some sort of, we've all seen those parents who go, can you not see what your kid is doing here? Should you not do something? He doesn't become a foolish, uh, doting father in that sense. It's just that, and you've got to hear this, it's just that the wrong things are not the lens through which he looks when he looks at you. He doesn't use that lens. And he says, when he looks at you, you're my loved child. So you know what? Just come live with me. Come be with me. And you'll find over time that you end up more like me. That happens with our earthly families, doesn't it, for good or bad? He looks at you and says, I love you, so let's just live together like father and son, father and daughter, like a family. And you may find you end up being more like me. Now, after this butterfly conversation, let's get back to Kerry. Kerry and his friend actually set up a formal mentoring relationship for about a year. Not untopical after our coach training day yesterday, which went very well. Um, and they deliberately to deal with this, okay, so how do I, you know, Kerry was thinking of himself as a worm with wings. How do I trans, uh, translate that across to actually living as if a butterfly, as a child of God? So they'd spent a year together with that as their goal. And there's no rocket science. I can't give you any amazing magic that you can just apply and that will work for you. A lot of it was really about Kerry just learning to make time to be with God, to learn to know him, to go home to his father more and more often. They did that for a year and then they, they decided that that arrangement would come to an end and they actually moved uh, suburbs, countries, uh, far away from each other. They met up a few years later. And Kerry, uh, the guy with the issue, this particular issue that we're focused on, said that the, the day he really got the idea that he is a child of God, um, that God looks at through the lens of love and forgiveness, was just another day that he was preparing for a trip to go out of town. But he noticed his usual anxiety, oh my goodness, I'm going to be alone in a hotel room, his usual anxiety around that didn't, wasn't there. He kind of noticed that and thought, oh, that's interesting. And um, he got to his hotel room, and he, went, he walked over to the television and he closed the doors on the console. 
and smiled and he said, I actually said out loud to myself, I know who I am. I'm a child of God. God's spirit lives in me. I am loved. I am home to the fullness of God. And he said for the duration of that trip, he didn't turn the television on once, not even to watch the news, and there was no pull or no draw or no temptation to do so. He said he knew still, it wasn't like some, da-da, I'm healed and everything's going to be beautiful from now on. He knew he could mess up. But he said something significant shifted in my head and heart that day. And he realised he wasn't looking at himself through the lens of his own brokenness anymore. He said, I knew I could sin. And I knew I could sin and God would still love me. I am his child after all. But you know what? In that situation, I didn't want to sin. I didn't want to do that thing. And he says, that was the day I knew I was finally getting what it means to live sure that I am a child of a good, good father who looks at me not with disappointment, not with despair, not with disgust, but with love and forgiveness. And he said, from that time, falteringly forward, back, but somehow steadily in a different way, I found myself becoming more and more like my father God. The thing he was striving for with all his discipline and I must do this and I'm so sorry, God, and I promise I won't do it again. When he actually got into relationship with God, he found himself becoming more and more like his father God. So good fathers, they see us through the lens of love and forgiveness and they help us to stand tall. They help us to be our best. That's a beautiful thing that good fathers do. God the Father does and our good fathers do. All right, you're hanging in there. That's two. There's one more place where Abba, Father, appears in the New Testament, and it's in another letter of Paul's, probably not surprisingly. Uh, this one written to the church at Galatia. And uh, if you've got your Bibles there or you can watch it on the screen, I'm going to actually read about seven verses there. So we'll have a little look at this together. Okay, think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are no better off than slaves until they grow up. You know, they've got to wait till they come of age, even though they actually own everything their father had. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us, here it is again, to call out, Abba, Father. And now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you an heir. Okay, whole pile of stuff there. You should go back and read all through Galatians if you've got time in the week. But this is essentially a story of an unexpected inheritance for the Jews that, that Paul was speaking to, but more than that, to everyone who wasn't a Jew as well. So, you know, the group that we clump together and call the Gentiles. So an unexpected inheritance. And there are so many layers to this story. You've got to go right, right back into the Bible. But one of the layers that it goes back to is the Exodus story, where God's people were freed from slavery to the Egyptian. 
Romans. And, and Paul sort of makes reference back to that, but he, then he brings the people up to the time that they're in now, and he says, you know, we're, we're slaves in a different way, but we're still slaves now. We're slaves, he says in verse 3, to the basic spiritual principles of the world. And that's probably a reference to the popular belief that guardian angels or deities were responsible for the, the oversight or the keeping of individual nations. And Paul is saying to the Jews, what's happened, guys, is... This thing that other nations believe that they've got a God that keeps them safe or a guardian angel, you've done the same thing with the law. You're going, we're okay, guys. We've got the law. We're safe. We're kept who we are. We're, we're in right relationship because of the law. But Paul says, but the story doesn't stop there. Jesus came, and with him came a means by which all nations, all people, can actually be one nation one people, one family, God's family, in fact. Because of Jesus, we can be people that are living in relationships and communities, back to what I said before, free from slavery to evil and violence and the, the cycle that that brings in our relationships. Children of God, now, not waiting, waiting, waiting till Dad dies or get to a certain age so the inheritance can kick in. The children of God now, living out a totally unexpectedly, totally new, totally free inheritance. And Paul, you're going, okay, what's this inheritance? Paul describes it as intimacy with God the Father. He describes it as freedom from living under the curse of the law. Think about Carey and all he was trying to do. You know, got to obey the law, got to get it right. Freedom from that. And the freedom to actually live lives empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's the inheritance that he's talking about. Okay, so what do we learn about good fathers here? We've got that list we've been going through. Well, in this particular case, there's a whole pile that we can't copy from God because actually, you know, God, I can't give my children, Hayden can't give his children uh, intimacy with God or, or the Spirit or uh, some of these things here. But I think you can take the principle. The principle is that God, as a good father, gives a good inheritance now. Not waiting till you get to a certain age or he dies or a certain mark comes along. A good, a good inheritance now. And I think we can see that as the, the thing that we can take as, as good fathers, good parents, just good people in relationship. Good fathers give their children a good inheritance now. And a good inheritance is something that allows our children to be their best. Okay, so we've looked at three times this word Abba, followed by the translation father appears in the New Testament, always used of God the Father. I hope we've seen just briefly in that some of the attributes of the goodness of God as Father and also perhaps some things that we can reflect on about how we can take those attributes and, and try and work them into the way that we father or mother or in fact I think when I look at this list which we'll get up in just a minute that, that it's, a, it's a list that's appropriate for all of our relationships Let's have a look at it again, actually. We've got it there? Okay, long list. Hope you can read it. So good fathers are present. People in healthy relationships are present. They're in good relationship. They fill each other, fill their kids with confidence that comes from being loved. That's why Jesus could say, don't want to do this, I will, if you say. See their kids through the lens of love and forgiveness. Help their kids stand tall and give a good inheritance so their kids can live their very, very best lives. 